0: My conversation today is with a giant in the fields of magic, druidry, and general occultism, John Michael Greer. He is one of the most well-known and widely respected authors and bloggers in fields ranging from nature spirituality to the future of industrial society. He is the author of more than 70 books, including 16 novels, and you can catch up on his weekly blog at ecosophia.net. In all honesty, he needs no introduction. I was thrilled to be able to chat with JMG about his early days as an author, his most recent and forthcoming projects, and hear his assessment of the current state of the art. Without further ado, I'm Ike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. Um. But so to jump into it, I know that mm-hmm. uh you you've you've talked a little bit about um some of the fiction that you've been mm-hmm. uh, that you've been that mm-hmm. you've been working on. How long have you been writing fiction
1: um that was the first thing that I ever started to write back when I was in my teen years. I was crazy about um, fantasy fiction in those days of course I, mm-hmm. I i got involved I got into Tolkien's Lord of the Rings very early um but i this was the 1970s. This was the era of tacky fantasy. You had endless amounts of barbarian heroes swaggering their way through you know imaginary kingdoms and all the usual <laughs> the stuff of that time. That, that, was, that was the raw material of, of my imagination in those days. I had a grand time. And so, of course, I started writing. Um, I think I was like fourteen when I, when I wrote my first fantasy story. It was dreadful. Of course it was bad. Um, I continued churning out various pieces of bad fantasy for, for some years thereafter before, and submitted a number of them to publishers, and got a really good collection of rejection slips. And finally it sank in that maybe I needed to learn a little more about writing so that I could actually like, do something publishable. But um, yeah, it, it, fiction, fiction goes way back for me.
0: Cool. So it's kind of, so it's been at the forefront. I mean, I guess that makes sense with what with magic Mm -hmm. and everything like that. But uh, can you, can you tell me a little bit about your, uh, your most recent fiction project?
1: The most recent one. Okay. Let's see the, the current, the current project because it's, it's an ongoing thing. Um, Okay. The, the Ariel Moravec occult detective novels, Um, the first one, the Witch of Criswell is just out The the next one in the series, the Book of Hatan. um, I just did paid proofs, and it should be out, I think, early next year. And then the third one's in process right now, the Carnelian Moon. Um, Okay, occult detective fiction. That's a genre that goes back a long ways. To some extent, Dracula by Bram Stoker is one of the classics in that field. But Mm. there there are a lot of a lot of stories about. people who investigate strange occult happenings and and get into various kinds of trouble and have to extricate themselves. It was popular in the 19th century. Um, It was popular in the 20th century. It filled a lot of pages in the pulp magazines in the first half of the century. There are plenty of writers to this day who are into it. Um, It's it's a genre that I've enjoyed. Um, It's a genre that has also irritated the bejesus out of me because, well... (laughs) You, 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 I'm going I'm to take what sounds like a tangent here, but it should make sense. Um, back in the golden age of science fiction, or back the silver age, I suppose they call it now, in the late 20th century, there was a magazine called Analog. And which, which um, it was the hard science fiction magazine. Apparently, every other reader was a retired engineer with a slide rule, and somebody would publish something in Analog, and you get 14 letters criticizing the 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 you know uh, faster-than-light drive because they made this mistake and that mistake, and the orbital velocity of such and such planet just won't justify this bit of. (laughs) It was that kind of thing. I'm kind of that way about magic. Since I write about magic, since I practice mm. occultism, of course that's been that, that has been the one thing in my life that in some way that you know is more um, <clears throat> more deeply rooted than my writing. Um, there's a lot of really bad magic in, in 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 these occult detective stories. A lot of completely bogus occultism, and it occurred to me that it would be a lot of fun to do a series of occult detective stories in which all the magic was real. All the magic with the stuff that actually happens, that occultists nowadays actually experience and work with. Of course, you know, that's not, that doesn't mean that the uh, scientific materialists among us will believe that it's real, but that's their problem. So, so that's been that's been the focus of this series. I have an eighteen year old detective. Uh, well, she's kind of the assistant detective. She is she her grandfather, um, Doctor Bernard Moravec, is the is the main detective, and they, they end up getting caught up in a series of these, these investigations. Um, the first time, focusing on the um, on on a witch, an actual you know, old fashioned person who curses and, and blights people's lives with noxious magic. In the second one, there's the theft of the magical book, which turn which turns into um, a hunt to for actually an old pirate, an old uh, chest of pirate treasure. Um, the third one has to do with werewolves, and that's that's fun. And th- th- I have others already sketched out. It's going to be a series.
0: Yeah, that sounds um, incredible. Actually, in, in my experience, um, you know, uh, when people do occasionally come to me and ask me to to kind of uh, explain magic to them or, or mm-hmm. things of that nature? You know, how do how do I find an inroad? I mean, most of my time is spent laboring and trying to talk them out of this kind of quote-unquote movie magic idea that they oh. have, you yeah. know, because it's their only point of reference, you
1: know, a, a lot of the yeah, time. Exactly. So I think that's, that's brilliant work, man. Well, thank you. I, I ended up just because I, of course, I have to do the same thing. I'm, I'm, there was there were a period there, was a period there where I was constantly having to explain to people that no, Harry Potter stuff is Hollywood. It's not what I do. Um, before that, there were some other. You know, it's been one thing or another. But so I invented a fake children's book about ma- or children's series about magic, the Bertie Scrub stories. Now this is not Harry Potter. It is not particularly closely modeled on Harry Potter. The, you know, the, the, the villain is not you – know, the, there's a villain, of course. Um, and you know, Lord Roderick Dudgeon, who has long black mustachios and so on, and, and various things. But all the magic is tacky. All the magic is typical Hollywood schlock. And so Ariel, who doesn't who doesn't like those books anyway, is constantly running into people who are saying, "Oh, this is just like in the British scrub novels," and she's going, "Oh, no, no, no!" <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's just it's it's partly and again i mean i mean no risk disrespect to jk rowling she has you know she's made a mint and obviously she's meeting mm-hmm. some some needs in her readers and things like that the Bertie scrub stories are not um harry potter stories they're written by a couple that lives in florida in my in my book and um you know and, so, and the, you know there is no there is no hogwarts academy or anything like that it's a different series okay but it feels much the same right. place as the kind of magnet for um Hollywood called Schlock. One of these in one of the future episodes, I'm going to have the um, they're going to the um, Hollywood outfit that's doing the British scrub movies is going to come to the city where where Ariel and her grandfather do their investigations, and so they're going to have to deal with um, this this you know film thing running around and all the screening fans and everything while trying to do an investigation.
0: That's fantastic, man! I can't wait to read that. Thank- that's hey, uh I, I, I mean you know
1: thank you that's encouraging
0: yeah i mean you know it's like we as occultists and and practitioners and stuff like that where it seems like we're constantly reading um so it's it's not often that i will elect to uh you know give my my mind a little break which i should be doing more often but uh mm. that's definitely on my list man i i, I love it i'm glad I love it. It. Um, i'm
1: glad i'm glad to yeah. hear it yeah this is yeah, so a, i mean it's been a f- Fun project, just even just just the two and a half books so far it's it's enormous fun and a little it's a little Less dramatic than some of my earlier stuff, which tend toward the more high fantasy end of things in their own weird way, and so I can have a little fun, and I can have my um eighteen year old heroine who really doesn't necessarily get it but is slowly you know becoming familiar with magic and you know I can have her tripping over her own feet as she as she makes her way into the world of magic in this fictitious city where she's involved in the investigations
0: mm. Well, uh, going back to something that you had said, uh, you said mm-hmm. that in in some in some ways, uh, your your magical life is more deeply rooted than your your writing mm-hmm. life, and I mean you you have not to kiss your ass, man, but I mean, you've, you've authored some of the most important and influential works on magic, you know, as yet possibly ever. So, I mean, uh, for, for, for me, I had to spend a long time uh, studying and practicing this stuff before I felt comfortable enough, uh, you know, even, or even Mm -hmm. felt like it was worth me pursuing, right. Contributing Mm -hmm. my drop, my drop to the bucket, my voice to the, Mm -hmm. you know, the -hmm. the choir to start talking about this in any kind of, I guess discursive or
1: instructional Mm -hmm. capacity, but Mm -hmm. was that Mm -hmm. the
0: same for you or were you kind of like just doing your output as you went?
1: No, 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 no. I got, I got into this stuff when, when I was a teenager, we're talking in the mid 1970s paperback revolution. You could finally start getting some of the old occult classics in, in for a reasonable price. And I was, um, I was crazy about it from, from my teen years, really going going back to the, to the days when my age was in single digits, I had this sense that there was something, something marvelous out there behind this word magic. And so when I finally, you know, was able to locate some books, and was reading um, Francis King and Stephen Skinner's Techniques of High Magic. Yes. Or w, yeah, that was, that was the book that really did it for me. That one and W.E. Butler's The Magician, His Training and Work. Those were my first two wow. serious books on the subject. And, I adored them. <laughs> I was just crazy about them, and so I was going yes, yes, yes. This is everything I've ever wanted, you know, with with all the enthusiasm that a geeky, you know, socially inept teenager can can muster, which is quite something. Yeah. So I got I was I was into that, and so I was practicing that in my teens and in my twenties, and it was it was not until what the late 1980s. So we're talking about. I'd been involved to one extent or another in magic for about 20 years, and I'd been serious about it for about 10. You know, know the systematic daily practice and all that for a decade Mm -hmm. before I first started to work on what ended up becoming my first book, Paths of Wisdom. I just, I, I was I was familiar with the literature on the Tree of Life, on the Kabbalah, as, as used in the Golden Dawn tradition. There were a lot of things that didn't satisfy me. There needed to be more information about the paths, da-da-da-da-da. So I started working on what was originally a correspondence course, and mm-hmm. that ended up becoming a book. And that was that was published in 1996. At that point, I had been... Um, yeah, 1996. Yeah, I've been seriously involved in magic for, you know, 20 years, more than that. Wow. And then, um, and, you know, and my first several books were all very much focused on adding to the Golden Dawn tradition. So wow. I was not, I was not like breaking a lot of new ground. As I saw it, I was just systematizing and putting things together and ha- ha- producing the guidebooks that I wished that I'd had when I started working on Golden Dawn magic.
0: Interesting. Now, were, did you um, forgive my ignorance? Were, were you ever initiated into a Golden Dawn lineage, or?
1: Oh yeah. No, that's, that 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 happened much later. Ah, okay. That happened much later, I, I I've ended up I've taken one degree or another of initiation in three different lineages and wow. but that hap- that that happened well it's once you become fairly well known you know people want to talk to you and i the first the first of them was my my teacher John Gilbert was mm. connected to a golden dawn lineage by by way of his teacher um Juliet Ashley who had studied with Arthur Edward Waite and dot 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 a long story there but that was my first serious initiation later i had i i had, was brought into two other Two other lineages, with more or less, you know, golden dawn connections in there, and but but most of what I did for the first, you know, for those early decades, I was doing it. I was doing self initiation, solitary practice, um, and that's why that's why so many of my books focus on that method because it works. Yeah. It's yeah. a slow way. It's it's a slow way, but it works. And you know, not not everyone can get to a lodge. Not everyone can locate one. So you know.
0: That's right. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the books that you that you mentioned, I mean, starting out with like Butler, Butler was serious, man. He was okay. like an, an occultist, oh, yeah. occultist, you know, that is, oh, like, yeah. I mean, that's starting on like, that's your, 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 you know, the first course
1: is like prime rib, right? There. Not a lot of mm-hmm. people yeah, exactly. have that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, that was what was available back in the, you know, back in the 70s. You could find anything at all. Um, because there just wasn't much in print. And you, you could get some Dion Fortune if you knew where to look. You could get some Butler, this uh, King and Stephen and Skinner's book, which I mentioned. That was, I mean, d- looking back on it, it was kind of kind of middle of the road. But at the time, it was a revelation. It had much more information than most books did. Yeah. And, but you couldn't get that much. But what you could get were classics. Mm. And so uh, moving into the 80s, as the, as the occult revival really picked up steam, there was a lot more that was available and yeah. um i started i was i uh, started grabbing everything israel reggardi ever wrote <laughs> and <went laughs> from there
0: that's great i mean you you've you've now at this point done some some well i i guess mostly editing but some translation mm-hmm. work for oh. for Regerty, levy you know mm-hmm. i mean and and i I'm I'm assuming that that came out of a perceived need for that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. which I can, I definitely get behind, you know, I mean, like, not for nothing, I I don't mean to, to to poo poo, Mm -hmm. because, because who the hell am I, but some of Waite's translations of, of Levy were kind of like, almost like this kind of like dusty scholar doing mystery science theater commentary. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know,
1: Oh, my. The thought of an Arthur Edward Waite version of Mr. of MST3K is just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm clutching my sides here. You have no idea how funny that is. Yeah. The, the thing is, Waite was an interesting cat. I mean, he's, he's in my lineage by two different directions now. And wow. um, so I, I don't want to snark at him too much, but he was a devout Christian, and he was very, very down on anything that wasn't, and Levy wasn't. Mm-hmm. Levy had his own you know, take on, on Christianity or something like it, he had his own vision, and he had studied a branch of Kabbalah that was different from the one that Waite knew, and Waite didn't get that, Waite thought he knew everything there was to know, mm-hmm. and so his, his translation of, of you know, um, dogma, doctrine and ritual of high magic was actually pretty poor. Uh Um, I, some of it I think was rushed. Some of it, he was obviously just profoundly irritated by what he was was writing. And yeah, he would just, you (laughs) could practically hear him just (laughs) grumbling as he, as he wrote the thing. And so Mark Micatuck and I went to work and decided it was time to, to come up with a good, solid English translation. We did one. And that was, that was a, that was a worthwhile project. The, oh, yeah. the the yeah, the editing of the, the my job as editor of um of Regardi's the Golden Dawn, that was that that was not my doing. That was Llewellyn Publications. They mm-hmm. decided that they decided it was time because there were some problems with the sixth edition. There were some some difficulties with it, and they decided they were gonna do the, they were gonna do one, they were gonna do it in house. They had an editor lined up and then he quit and got another job. Somewhere else. Yeah. And so they were flailing around and of course they had to find somebody who wasn't up to their eyeballs in the current Golden Dawn wars. And so I got approached about doing it. And I was going, Okay, so you're asking yeah, yeah, come on. This is this is a dream job. <laughs> this is you know, this this is the book that I that was central to my magical practice for a decade. Hmm. I you know, I love this book. I know it inside and out. This is of course I'll do this for you, and so I did it, and it was that was that was a lovely experience. That was really a lovely experience, and I, I really think they I really think they produced they, they produced it well. The new seventh volume, the big gray brick instead of the big black brick or previously big blue brick, is you know it's I think it, I, maybe I'm just expressing my own vanity, but I think it came out very well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a tremendous undertaking as well. It's a a kind of a, kind of a service to, to the magical community as well. Mm -hmm. These things, these things need to undergo, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, tune ups over time just to adjust to, to the vernacular with which modern people are, are used to, uh, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. conversing plus I'm, you know, it's funny. I, um, I remember I remember Chick Cicero uh, telling me about uh, his conversations with Israel Regardie, and mm-hmm. and there were there were certain things when <laughs> Israel would basically say, "Oh, you know, I forgot to put that in the big book. I'm going to have to do mm-hmm. that in, in the next <laughs> edition." <laughs> Which I got I got a real kick out of that, you know, very nonchalantly, mm-hmm. like "Oh, slipped my mind" type of thing. But I mean, it, <laughs> what kind of things yeah. at, at this point do you, if any? What kind of things do you find wanting in the modern occult and magic, I guess, literary communities?
1: Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> I'm gonna, you're asking me to get myself into trouble. I'm willing to do that, but just <laughs> be aware. Um, the number of people in, who write about magic nowadays who only know English and have never read a book that was written before they were born mm. is embarrassing. <laughs> um they, I, I i constantly end up you know having a look at this book on magic or that book on magic, and the people who write it clearly have never really grasped the fact that magic existed before the 1960s or if they do, they have this vague sense, this sort of vague glop in which um, you know, ancient Neolithic witches, and Israel Regardy, and Dion Fortune, and Alistair Crowley, and um, Egyptian priests, and it's all sort of globbed all together. Mm-hmm. And the fact that magic has a long, very richly documented history—that in fact, there's a lot of scholarly publications on the subject that you can get into this stuff and understand what was going—it's embarrassingly absent. You know, you get yeah. you get situations. Well, one of one of my one of my particular pet peeves these days. Um, Pascal Beverly Randolph, brilliant man, 19th century occultist, the first really influential African American occultist as an in influential outside his own community. Um, a, just a, a giant of an occult thinker. And nobody talks about him. Mm. <laughs> nobody, t- well. Some people do. There are some good occult writers these days who do talk about P.B. Randolph. But, I mean, this is the guy who invented the, for, the version of sex magic that became Gerald Gardner's, the, that became the great Rite of Wicca by way of Gerald Gardner. Oh, wow. This is the guy who invented the version of sex magic that Aleister Crowley practiced. Mm. They, well, of course, Gardner got it from Crowley. One of the things a lot of Wiccans don't want to talk about is that Gerald Gardner was one of Aleister Crowley's students. That's right. um, Crowley got it from Theodore Royce of the OTO, and um, Royce and Carl Kellner, who helped found the OTO um, before, he, before he up and died. Um, they got it by way of um, the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor, which was drawing material from Randolph. And so, you know, this guy is this guy is an incredibly interesting, incredibly influential occult writer. One of the most important occult writers of the nineteenth tw- century. And yet, most books, even the babble about sex magic, literally don't mention his existence. Wow, it's just—it's amazing. Wow. Um, yeah. So, thing one that I would love to see more occult writers do is learn a little history, please. Um, thing two. <laughs> Is again learn a language other than English. We, we've got some nice occult systems in the English language. You know, we've got we've got Crowley, we've got Fortune, we've got Regardi, we've got the Golden Dawn papers, we've got various other things like that. There are entire worlds of magic that are that nobody can get you. You can't get into unless you can read French, or unless you can read. German. These are not difficult languages. You can learn them. You, you can you know, go online and, and find, a, you know, find a course that will teach you how to read this stuff. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, the door goes open and you enter into completely new realms of magic that nobody in America and no, knows how to do.
0: Yeah. Because they yeah. don't
1: they don't even know this stuff exists. We're not even gonna talk about what's available if you know Latin or if you know classical Chinese or if you know Sanskrit or if you know ancient Egyptian. All these languages can be learned. Yeah. And yeah. you know, but but there's a lot there's a lot of a lot, of it, a lot of tendency to sort of rehash a very narrow range of magical practices that happen to be the ones that we've got in the modern American occult community. And I'd like to see a little, more, a little more creativity, a little more imaginative research, and a little more attention to what's been done in the past so you can figure out what to build on. That's, you know, and this is to some extent this is a middle-aged guy grumbling, but...
0: Well, I think all valid criticisms by way of improving Right, our mm-hmm. community, our, our yeah. community, and our and our mm-hmm. our knowledge base. Because really, I mean, context is is everything, and mm-hmm. that's really what history gives you. But yeah. it's it, yeah. it is pretty interesting. You know, I I'm I'm, I'm Greek by heritage, and I, I speak mm-hmm. the language. And uh, Good. one of the things that that I do see that's that very interesting to me is is um, you know there is a there's there's nuance to uh, mm-hmm. la- to romance languages there are there mm-hmm. are sh- shades of meaning there are multiple oh, ways yeah. of 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 interpreting wordplay mm-hmm. etc mm-hmm. and and that does really get lost when you look at some oh, yeah. of the um yeah even the academic mm-hmm. translations oh
1: yeah oh yeah i mean, the the, the, tr- the couple of translations that i've done from french it was always one of these Oh God, how can I, you know, how can I communicate this? And usually it amounts to, I can't, I can just do my best. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, it's it's one of those things, but well, yeah, I, I should, I, if I, if I didn't mention, I should, in there, I should certainly have mentioned Koine Greek because that's another right. language in which there's an immense amount of stuff waiting. And so, yeah,
0: Yeah. I, I enjoyed actually, um, in uh the doctrine and ritual that mm-hmm. that you had that you had done and also i think and we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on 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 your blog in a little bit but i know that you've mm-hmm. been you've been kind of having this ongoing uh sort of uh lecture series or study group study of mm-hmm. doctrine and ritual but mm-hmm. but the um your your translator uh, for, forgive me last name is uh, Mikituk is that how you pronounce Mikituk. it?
1: Mikituk, Mikituk. Yes. he's oh. um he is uh, he is um a Frenchman of ukrainian origin
0: Yes so I I really loved that he left <laughs> there was certain nuance like certain things mm-hmm. that had been, that had been translated to to mm-hmm. word uh, you know taken mm-hmm. from from logos to word or something he and left he, he left it as verb
1: as verb yes we talked over that i was one of the reasons i was really happy to work with him on this project is that yeah he's a native speaker i'm not a native speaker of french right. and so We had a lot of conversations where he was trying to communicate to me, okay, this is what this French word, this French phrase means. How do you put it into, um, you know, idiomatic American English? And I'm going, Mm -hmm. uh, okay, let's try this. And so, yeah, like the verb rather than the word. I thought that worked extremely well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. My mind kind of like a door unlocked. I remember, you know, and then, and then it pursue, pursuing it later on, things end up uh, making more sense. But what I, what I really enjoyed, actually the last time that we spoke, uh, I, the, the kind of your telling of, of a uh, quote unquote, translating the Necronomicon. <laughs> it was an excellent well, story.
1: In effect. Yes. <laughs> um, the, the thing is, the, the Picatrix that was another fun project and that was another project where I worked of course with someone else with Chris Warnock and and yeah t- t- turning the necronomicon you're coming up with an english version of the necronomicon that thing that thing's still selling like hotcakes i hope i hope a lot of people are actually doing something with it yeah but um but yeah that was that was an intriguing experience that was one of the one of the deep dives of translation because of course it's it's medieval it's not it's not a modern or quasi-modern like like levy or even like um the book of of fencing based on sacred geometry at the academy of the sword which was 17th century french you know here we're going back to 12th century latin with uh, by someone who whose native whose native language was was you know medieval spanish Man. And who was did not think like a modern person at all, who was translating this Arab sorcerer who did not think like a modern person at all, and so yeah that was that was a brain stretch yeah yeah well
0: again excellent excellent work um and like Thank like you. i like i said you you've kind of been uh you know um parsing things out on the uh the doctrine and higher ritual in your blog mm-hmm. which is which is eco Ecosophia.
1: Mm-hmm. Sophia eco
0: net right that's right yeah. and it's it, it's something that i found to be a little bit of a rare resource nowadays mm-hmm. uh somehow mm-hmm. i feel like you've managed to preserve in a living form almost that golden age of internet forum type interaction it was gr- no, it, like, it's it's, really great in like the late 90s yeah. early 2000s in magical communities but what what you've managed to sidestep mm-hmm. at least at least it seems to me is is kind of the the
1: bickering that that also goes on, oh, on the- <laughs> it, it's it's real simple I have a, I, I, how I do that is quite simple. I moderate every comment. And, mm. oh, do I get yelled at for suppressing people's free speech and not permitting free and blah, blah, blah. No, I moderate every comment. If somebody's going to get into a bicker fest or if they're going to troll or flame bait or do any of the other annoying things, um, their comment can you know, go into the trash can with the other pieces of trolling and, 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 and you know, enjoy themselves there. Um, I love it. It works. I've been, I've been passing this on to people for a long time, and some people are starting to get it or starting to realize that if you want a good conversation, you have to filter out the people who want to abuse the commons. Right. And and it it really is simple. Just, you know, delete anybody who acts like a jerk. Wow, what a concept. <laughs> Think of it as the lesser banishing ritual of the Internet troll. <laughs> um, That's great. <laughs> thank you. That's excellent. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, I'm... I have people who hang out on my blog not because they're especially interested in in the subject but because they like the conversations because mm-hmm. they can actually have a conversation and not have the usual garbage take place. Yeah. Right. So I figure I'm I'm doing providing some kind of service.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something like that on the internet where you can go and discuss opinions without leaving mm-hmm. with your blood blood pressure elevated. To me that's very <laughs> high value. Yeah. Yeah. But um something that uh, I'm not sure how many um, people are completely aware of, but uh, you've been a Freemason for for, uh, for many years, haven't
1: you? Oh yes, yeah, since 2001. I yeah. was made a Mason in 2001.
0: Right, and you you obviously you have you've got some experience with um, in other traditions, but mm-hmm. uh, may I ask what pulled you toward um, Druidry being a really prominent fixture in your magical
1: life? Um, that was one of the, that that many of the things that have happened to me in the course of my magical career are not things that I planned. They're <laughs> things that happened. They're, you know, doubtless there was some kind of a ten, intention going on there. Doubtless there was a bigger purpose. But I had no idea. Mm-hmm. What happened was I was involved in, I was living in Seattle at the time, I was involved in a small magical lodge that I helped to found, and we were doing kind of, a, kind of an offshoot of Golden Dawn workings, and one of the other members was, was a, a, an, older, an older man by the name of Corby Ingold, and he was a, he was a friend of a friend he been brought in. He was, he was he's a very capable mage, um, and we got to talking, and it turned out he was a member of the Order of Bardzovits and Druids, and I said, oh really, I'd, I'd never heard of that. So we, got, we had some conversations back and forth, and he invited me to consider joining, and so I did. I was saying, yeah, well, you know, it's an initiation. It's a new source of training. It's nothing that I've ever tried before, right. but why not? And I liked it. <laughs> I you know I, I I was initiated into into Obot. I um proceeded to take the the all three levels of the course and learned an enormous amount from it mm-hmm. and then and so that's that I got into druidry that way and I was kind of looking around for something else to do in a druid fashion after I'd finished their course and a chapter of accidents got me into contact with um, John Gilbert and uh, the the Ancient Order of Druids in America, which I ended up, uh, you know, as the head of for twelve years. Right. And again, I didn't I didn't plan that. Um, <clears throat> what happened was that I I, I I found out about AODA in, an, in a book on. American Druid Orders by somebody who was very contemptuous of AODA. He was one of these um, very Celtic neo-pagan types, and he was going, you know, the ancient order of Druids in America, it's small, and it's dowdy, and it's Masonic, and it's not sufficiently nasty to Christians, and it's horrible. And I read then and said, I need to find that group. That sounds fine by me. <laughs> so I set off to try to contact them, and you know, um, of course, letters came back, no such address, all the usual stuff. Right. Finally, turned. Finally, I did get in touch with um, John Gilbert, who was the secretary at that time, and one of the last, I think, eleven members alive at that point. Wow! And it had been it had been shut down for years, practically. I mean, it still existed in a kind of in in somebody's briefcase. It had never actually been formally closed. And so I started talking to John, and I was going, this, you know, I, I'd like to learn more about this. This sounds interesting. And it went from there to, wow, this is cool. Have you considered blowing the dust off this and doing something with it? And it went from there to, you want me to run it? <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> so that's how I became Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America, and was brought into an order where I was, I was the youngest member by like 30 years. <clears throat> and... Wow. Away I went. What I didn't know at that time, and am still slightly baffled by, is that once I went from John Michael Greer occult writer to John Michael Greer a Grand Archdruid, all of a sudden people started taking me seriously, uh-huh. and I have no idea why. I mean, it's a silly title, and you <laughs> think that people would be going, "Oh, come on, Grand Archdruid!" I, literally. It, it, it was as though, you know, once I put on the funny hat, I was going, I am the grand arch druid of AODA. <laughs> Listen to me. And they did. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it literally made my career. Yeah. And so, um, I, but I did that for 12 years and in the process learned a lot about druidry. I'm still very much involved, very much involved in druid practice and things like that. But it was not something I ever intended. Mm. A happy, a happy accident. A happy accident. A happy, and, well, in so insofar as accidents exist, I I think, you know, somebody right. or something decided. You know, some some tentacled horror said, "You are the one." <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean that's the thing that it 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 has a way of you know, oh, yeah. and and especially when it's not on your radar. If if you, I'm a firm believer. If you have something that is. Some sort of contr- contribution that needs to be heard—it'll it, get out there uh, oh, one way yeah. or another. And apparently, one uh, one if, another. if if you have a lot of stuff that uh, shouldn't be heard, it it gets out there too. Now that we have the internet, <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, what 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 I found interesting, really interesting, and and let me say, uh, let me preface it with—I found it admirable—is the way that mm-hmm. druidry, at least in particular, seems to explicitly sort of Emphasized, or maybe maybe it bolstered, because I, I'm I'm not aware necessarily of of, of anything um, prior to it, but but this eco focused lifestyle, like mm-hmm. a, a practical application of, mm-hmm. I guess, spiritual natural philosophy in your life mm-hmm. and in your home, you know, and like mm-hmm. for instance, you know, the dial in conference we're having at the moment, it's certainly to me proof of the pudding.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, the, and that that was. Uh, there There had been a number of various various attempts over the last oh century and a half maybe to to come up with some kind of spirituality that is oriented toward nature and to some extent Wicca came out of that movement and Druidry seems to have really picked that up and, and run with it um, maybe it 's just the the sort of em, emotionally charged image of the druid or something i 'm not sure what but Certainly, there needs to be an understanding of the, of you know, the spiritual dimensions of the environment and the environmental d- dimensions of spirituality. That's that's a very important thing, right? Especially now, mm-hmm. and and druidry seems to be seems to do that for a lot of people, and I'm I'm delighted with that. I, of course, I, I I did my best to play that up and to to get people thinking about that in my books on druidry and also in. Um, in, in my work, when I was when I was head of AODA, we we put a lot of emphasis into that, and the, um, the the current management still does. I'm delighted to say. So yeah,
0: yeah, and and how much of that are you? How much of of that do you focus on with uh, EcoSophia?
1: Um, it really varies. Okay. I have there have been periods in my blogging where I've really focused on it. There have been periods on my blogging where I've talked about other things. I I, I try to avoid saying the same thing over and over again. Right. And there's, to some extent, there's only so much you can say, you know, mm. thing, uh, look, look at your lifestyle and say, okay, how is this impacting the natural world? Right. And is there a way that I can adjust my lifestyle? Not, you know, go live in a cave in a hair shirt or something, but are the ways I can adjust my lifestyle to place less of a burden on nature? Yes, there are, uh, the, the short form. And there are various ways to do it, but they vary from person to person. One of the things we one one of the traditions we had in AODA, we insisted that everybody in the in the first year of training would make one change in their life to cut the burden they placed on the natural world. And we didn't tell anyone which change to make. You had to choose right. that one for yourself. Uh, partly that's very druid. The the whole the whole focus of druidry is it's 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 not a dogmatic spirituality. It's not about we tell you what to do. It's about figure it out for yourself, schmuck. <laughs> and and if we, what, one, of the, one of the things I also found is that when we, when we did this, when we encouraged people to look at their own lives and make a change that made sense to them, then they'd go on and make another change and another change and another change. And, and because, because it was under their control, it was something they could do, they could choose. It wasn't the hair shirt. It wasn't the, oh, you know, I am so sorry. And, you know, all the, all the usual schlock. Right. Um, people were actually, and people were having fun with it. Yeah. People were saying, okay, I can make these changes and my life will actually improve. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and having to, you know hey you go figure it out right i mean having mm-hmm. that whole piece that's kind of an an exercise in in almost magical self discovery i guess uh, oh, definitely yeah. in in that context oh, yeah. and it's it's oh, yeah. it's yeah. you kind of find your you find your own um, empowerment mm-hmm. that i, I found mm-hmm. you know i i moved out to you know arguably one of the most rural areas um at least on the east coast and we've been mm-hmm you know, homesteading and, and, and growing our own food and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and it's just little by little, by little, by little, mm-hmm. you start out with a couple of plants and then eventually you've got garden beds, you've got mm-hmm. rainwater. Uh, but the thing is, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but for anybody else that, that might be listening in on the conversation, the, the thing for me, especially having come to it more recently, within the mm-hmm. last like two, three years is that y- these changes like, you, like you're saying, are not hard. They're, they're, not mm-hmm. con, they're just not convenient.
1: Mm-hmm. That's all. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, it. And That's all. Now, from, from a magical point of view, from the point of view of magical training, that's exactly what makes them great because they're training of the will. Right. Because just going along with what's convenient, going along with, with what you're told to do by the media, what you're told to do by the various authority figures in society, society that's weakness of will. Right, And that weakens the will. If you're going to say, no, I'm going to choose to do this thing. It's a little inconvenient. It's not hard. It's not painful. It's just inconvenient. It just means you have to change how you do things. Right, And something that simple can become a powerful tool to develop strength of will, which has all kinds of payoffs in and out of magic, of course.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and you kind of, you unplug, you pull your head out from this kind of mm-hmm. uh, hypnotic sorcery of having to blame. Yeah. You know, nowadays, every everything just is, we're constantly encouraged to blame everything but ourselves, make changes in everything else, but God forbid me, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah, and of course, that's, that's a very effective pe- way to make keep people powerless because it's by changing yourself that you, that you change everything else. It's your power over yourself, your capacity to guide yourself, shape yourself, make your own choices. That's the core of all power. That's the place where power begins and where it um, where it has its home. And so once you start doing that, even in a very small way, that starts to build and unfold. And then you can go, oh, I don't like these things about my life. I will change the way I live. And all of a sudden, you know you walk straight through the walls and into the fire and
0: life is good. <laughs> yeah. Here here, here here. Um so so now you you've you stepped back a while ago I think right from from serving as the Grand
1: Archdruid of the AODA. Oh, yeah. No, I, that was that was a uh, 20 uh, Winter 2015. Solstice 2015, yes.
0: So um as far as magic goes and you know for people like yourself and um, other guests I've had on, magic is—it's a way of life. So it's this is a little bit—you know—it's a little bit of a difficult question. But I, I'm just curious: um, what's really so nowadays? What's really exciting you about either, either kind of a new approach or or even even something you know that's more well-worn territory? Is—is is there something <laughs> that you're that you're working on nowadays that's really? Oh yeah,
1: Though always. Yeah. Always. I've, you know, I always have things that I'm working on. Um, a little while back, I, I, was, I had the opportunity to be initiated to the Martinist tradition, which is a French tradition of, of occultism. Mm-hmm. And I, I, had to, I received my Martinist initiation. By the terms of the initiation, I cannot say where or, or by whom, but that's fine. Um, but so that has opened up an entire new body of esoteric tradition that is developed around Martinist things written by Papu, things written by a lot of other Martinist writers over the years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm having a lot of fun working with that. And, um, yeah, so that's – and this is in addition, you know – I, I'm, you know, there are geeks. There are computer geeks. There are non-computer geeks. There are occult geeks, and I'm one of them. Um, my main, my main daily practices are still those practices are still based on the material that I studied with John Gilbert back in the day. But mm-hmm. I also have been working with this Martinist material and having a lot of fun with it and learning a great deal from it. So I have that's that's been um, that's been the major focus, the the kind of new exciting focus of what I'm doing right now. Yeah,
0: um, there, there's. There's uh, quite a lot there. I'm, you know, again, I, uh, I I won't say too much or anything else, but um, yeah, I'm, as you know, I'm also a Martinist uh, Mm -hmm. and, and it's been something that has been groundbreaking for me over the last Mm -hmm. couple of, couple of years. It's uh, the way Mm -hmm. that I, that I put it to people is that um, it establishes a magical worldview right out of the gate Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and kind of gives you where the golden dawn until you know the very high adept grades at least that who you know how many people you can probably count on two hands how many people have actually actually get there uh in in fact um but the the golden dawn gives you the how and the martinism kind of gives you more of the why right out of the Mm -hmm. gate and and i'm Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of a lot of interest in martinism right now just Mm -hmm. from just just all all sections of the occult community kind of turning there Mm -hmm. which
1: is weird well no i think uh, to I think on the one hand, a lot of people are tired of the sort of pop culture occultism. There's been a lot of pop of pop culture stuff. There's been a lot of... And people have... Been, and a lot of it has been fading out. Um... A lot, of pe- there, there's a lot of the big pagan festivals, for example, are shrinking in size or even shutting down. Um, the, the little witch stores that mm-hmm. you used to have in every neighborhood, practically. Hard to find one of those nowadays. It's really getting back down mm-hmm. to the people who are serious about it. And Martinism is a good place to go if you want to get serious about it. And so I think, uh, and of course, mm-hmm. there's also, the, to, to, Amer- to most Americans, it's unknown. To most Americans, it's, it's a mystery. And and that excites us. And it's it's not the thing is there's a lot of good stuff in the Golden Dawn tradition, and um, it needs to be developed. It needs to have more of this material, um, more of more of the why um, added to the how. Right. But maybe Martinism will do that. The thing is, some of some of the more interesting figures in in occult history in the English speaking world were both Martinists and Golden Dawnies. William Wynne Westcott's a great example. Um, one of the founders of the Golden Dawn, yeah. who's a Martinist. Um, Ross Nichols, who was the founder of the Order of, Bo- order of Bards, Ovates, and Druids, the Druid order that I first joined, he was a Martinist. Um, and George Winslow Plummer, who founded the Societas Rosicruciana in America, not the San Jose Rosicrucians, yes, <clears throat> the New York City Rosicrucians, um, who's that's that's another right. group I belong to and a tradition that I worked in. He was he was a Golden Donnie and a Martinist and a Rosicrucian and three or four other things too, <laughs> and. And you can tell. Yeah. He's got he's in in his lessons, he's got that background and so as well as a lot of you know a lot of other useful stuff. So so I think I think it's a very good sign that Martinism is becoming more popular and that some of these other these other French traditions um, are getting a little more exposure in, in, in the in the English speaking world in America and so on. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else ends up flowing into the community now that you know, we've been through another of these big cycles of of mass popularity, as happened back in the the early twentieth century with Theosophy, as happened in the late twentieth century with Wicca. Um, those fade, and then it's the people who are serious who have to, you know, pick themselves up and you know clear away the the, the rubble and get to work.
0: Mm. Yeah, and and I think a a big part of making Martinism a little bit more accessible is uh mm-hmm. is the, the the translations you know that mm-hmm. uh you know mm-hmm. pu- publishers like Ro- rose circle books and stuff are you know uh putting out these these great translations for mm-hmm. for for an american audience really and, and they're oh, they're, yeah. they're circulating actually what what i'm finding is that they're circulating um uh at least in in the communities in which with which i keep in touch they're circulating mm-hmm. largely in 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 mas- masonic you know groups oh yeah they're really interesting
1: oh yeah no, so, that, that, that makes perfect sense because um, I mean, for, in Freemasonry, what we have is this marvelous system of initiation handed down from the distant past, and the vast majority of people who who, who uh, you know preserve it and pass it on, they have no clue what they've got. They know it's important. They feel right. in their guts that, that it's important. They're loyal to it. They are many of the best men I've ever met, and they have absolutely no clue about the esoteric dimension mm. and mm-hmm. but the people and you get a lot of masons who are you know who realize this they've they've had you know they've had their craft degrees they've had some of the other some of the other degrees and so on they know there's more and then they find about, out about Martinism and here's this set of degrees where they actually tell you what it's all about oh yeah <laughs> you're going to see you're going you're to see a stampede of, of Masonic brothers heading toward that puppy so, yeah. You know, yeah. I think I think it's a great sign. And one of the things that may eventually happen over, you know, over the period of centuries perhaps, is that more of the esoteric material will gradually flow back into the masonic tradition and make it what it once was.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's uh there's a tremendous upswell um from the newer generations to, Mm -hmm. to attempt to, to revive that. So there's a big, uh, uh, Masonic, um, revival foundation, actually. Mm -hmm. I think they just had a, they just (laughs) had a symposium recently. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people just take, take, taking the work seriously, uh, Mm -hmm. going back, going back to, you know, this pre, uh, you know, post-war type of thing is you had, you know, um, you had a lot of esoteric writers in the early 1900s, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 late uh 19th century and and mm-hmm. and all that stuff you know um Wilmshurst great example of that mm-hmm. people took him very seriously and then kind of the, that post-war generation when when everybody mm-hmm. came home and and I guess American life became uh just eminently social uh, it mm-hmm. kind of got 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 washed out got drowned mm-hmm. out by a numbers game but you're really seeing it back to basics right now which I think is mm-hmm. is fantastic
1: it's one of the things that really gives me hope for the, um, for, you know, in, in a sort of broader sense, so many people are, are doing that. And the thing is, this has happened before. There have been periods in, in English history, for example, when masonry has been a social club. It was a place, I mean, in the, in the 18th century, you went to a Masonic lodge to get drunk. <laughs> and they did. They would, they hold them upstairs at, um, you know, up, upstairs in, in pubs. In yeah. the private rooms, they'd hold their meetings, and the, uh, you know, the two stewards, their job was to funnel drink orders down to the barmaid. <laughs> and they did.
0: <laughs> and so, yeah,
1: and yet, and yet it survived that and pulled itself back together in the 19th century and got, got a much more esoteric dimension. So, we're, you know, we're going through another of these changes. Yeah. And fortunately, we seem to be coming back out of it, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, as much as possible, can be preserved and restored and then put back into working order.
0: Right. So um I've got a couple of canned questions that I okay. that I asked that I can, that I ask everybody. I'm very interested to um we covered some of it we did we covered some of it in in uh, just in, in our you know conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know I, I am interested to kind of head on ask the question. In what ways do you think uh, practitioners, but people who are who are really serious about the work can affect change in their local environments through magic?
1: Um, to a profound degree, in an indirect way. Mm-hmm. The thing to keep in mind, one of the, one of the basic lessons of, of every kind of operative occultism is that mind is not limited to the inside of your skull. Um, right. What goes on in your head affects th- the world. It does so, you know, in the same way everyone's broadcasting basically everybody's broadcasting thoughts everyone's broadcasting emotions and as you work as you develop your yourself magically as you commit yourself to these practices and these disciplines you learn to attune yourself to higher and higher modes of consciousness that radiates out from you and Mm -hmm. that affects everything around you and the more people do that um, th- this is this is why this is why in so many older societies you have like monasteries and so on where you have people who are literally spending all their time radiating a uh, positive energy onto the world. Right. I, I, I think it helped. I think it did enormous amounts of good, and it's it's kind of unfortunate that that's fallen out of out of practice in so many societies. But we'll, we'll get back to that. In the yeah. meantime, you know, each of us can look at what we're radiating. What are we projecting into the world? What is you know what. And, you know, of course, that also, that also influences our speech and our actions, and those can kind have of just amazing consequences. The number of times that, that I'm, you know, just in my own life, I found that a casual comment I made somewhere or some kind of simple action that I did to help somebody, ends up having these, these cascades of effects that I had no idea, yeah. and that actually helped people, you know, that I, including helping people I'd never met there 's always the possibility of that, and the more we work with magic, the more we develop the higher states of consciousness we learn divination, we learn ritual, we learn these various these various arts and practices, the more of a positive effect we can have on everything around us
0: excellent excellent um, so uh my next question my next canned question is uh, mm-hmm. so we we 've co- we 've actually covered quite a bit of ground, but um I guess normally what, what I would ask is three books you'd recommend for anybody who's listened to this conversation wants to learn more about some of the topics we've covered, but we've we we have covered quite a bit.
1: But so we have so anyway, covered just... quite a bit. Um, okay, now and, and I'm going to be selfish enough to make them my books. Because, <laughs> great, you know, great. This is one of those things. Um, if they, those those of, those readers who are interested in druidry, um, my book, actually my, my my very recent book, The Druid Path. Um, it's a pleasant little hardback. It is an introduction to Druidry for the total beginner. And it's apparently, it's apparently become quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, another recent book of mine that I think applies to sort of the general occult background of this is um, the Occult Philosophy Workbook. And it's one of a series of books, but we don't have to get into that right now. It seems to be again fairly popular because it sets out the sort of occult worldview and how how occultists understand the world, um, from of course from the point of view of one particular system of, of teaching and practice, but. It's, generally, it's fairly generally applicable. And then the third one would probably be The Witch of Criswell, which we were talking about earlier, the first Ariel Moravec novel. Because on the one hand, obviously we were talking about that. On the other hand, it is, and that, that whole series is an attempt to make real magic a little easier for people to understand, so they can approach it through the experience of fiction. They can exp- approach it through these hopefully interesting characters and their interesting events, and get out of the Bertie Scrub mode of magic and not be expecting evil hedgehogs in the hedgerows, you know, in, who are who are you know <laughs> the the spies of Lord Roderick Dudgeon. <laughs> So those are the three books that I recommend. Um, all by me. All quite recent. Available at at any really good bookstore. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Excellent. So are are there. Uh... Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up our conversation? Any final thoughts um, from JMG? Any final thoughts? Just
1: now, no final thoughts are not something I'm good at, so I'll just say um, the, world <laughs> of, the world of occultism is very, very big, and it has enormous amounts of room. It is not one of these narrow little sets of rules that you have to follow exactly or somebody will kick your rump. Um, there's a lot of room to learn and a lot of room to grow and to help people and um you know there my, the the approach that i have taken is one particular rather odd roundabout path through a very big forest and there's mm-hmm. plenty of room for people to explore
0: beautiful well i i uh i really want to thank you for spending some time with me this evening yeah. um it's well, thank i you for I, me I, I love you. listen Absolutely, I I always love listening to to your stories and and reading your work. You, this has been a fantastic thank conversation you. for me. I you, you truly are a master of language, um, the incomparable John Michael Greer. Thank you so much uh, for being on with me tonight,
1: and thank you again for having me on. I always enjoy it.